Friends, let us pray. O oh God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us where we stand and where you are leading us. By the power of this word that is both ancient and new, grant us grace for the living of these days that we might be the people you call us to be in this world that you love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Jesus said, pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the aftermath of the Cold War, frustrated by what had become binary paradigms for war and peace, pacifism and just war theory, Christian ethicists created a new ethic to come alongside them. Just peacemaking was born. Unlike just war theory and pacifism, both of which deal with how we are called to respond to war, either opposing all war on principle or justifying some, just peacemaking deals with how we can prevent wars. It says that by the time you arrive at the question of whether or not to wage, go to, or support the war effort, you've already reached a tragic point in relationship. What if we took all of the energy we throw into that moment of decision and redirect it towards preventing a march towards violence? Just peacemaking as a new ethic for war and peace includes 10 practices from nonviolent direct action to cooperative conflict resolution to just economic development. And the fourth is all about repentance and the conviction that entire nations or peoples can and must acknowledge their wrongs when they have done wrong, their responsibility for conflict and injustice. It's the conviction that healing cannot begin until repentance occurs, and that where there is incomplete healing, the seeds for future conflict lie. In their contribution to a book on just peacemaking, doctors Alan Geyer and Donald Shriver highlight one of the more breathtaking examples of national repentance. German Chancellor Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik initiative to repair the damages of World War II to Germany's neighboring countries, restoring the 1939 border with Poland, the first country to be occupied by the Nazis and home to the largest number of Holocaust victims. 
They recall how, without any guarantee of parliament approval, Brandt courageously signed a treaty accepting the pre-war frontier. And it was a decision that was personally dramatized by his kneeling silently at the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial as an act of atonement for German offenses against the Polish people. Germany is often lifted up as a shining example of a country that has dealt righteously with its violent past. And much of those accolades are well-deserved. But I also remember hearing a testimony not long ago from a German teacher in his 90s who lived through the Nazi years and has spent a good portion of his adult life going around to German school children to share his experience. He said that as the years have progressed, he sees the look of dread in the eyes of the youth before he even opens his mouth to speak. Oh, good. Here's another old guy come to tell us about the sins of our grandparents. And he says that it scares him. He has seen what a lack of humility and collective responsibility can do. Repentance, it seems, is not a one-and-done deal. It is a practice, a way of life on this side of eternity. So what does it have to do with the Lord's Prayer and the line that we focus on today? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our basic and often helpful inclination is to focus on the verb in that sentence, forgive. But in this prayer, the noun that follows is equally as important, debts, debtors. It's a word that Jesus used intentionally because the Bible is full of talk about debt, literal debt. It's full of talk about debt because the economic systems of the ancient Mediterranean world were built on debt and debt slavery. And the Hebrew scriptures were especially attentive to halting the violent march of those systems. In Leviticus 25, it forbids the levying of interest on a loan to kin who have fallen into difficulty. It says, do not take interest in advance or otherwise make a profit from them but fear your God. In Deuteronomy 24, it doesn't forbid the taking of a pledge as collateral, an, al an alternative to taking interest, but it does try to control the damage that could be done. It says no one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Later it says, if a person is poor, you shall not sleep in the garment given you as the pledge, but you shall give it back by sunset. And of course, there is the call to, re to release the people from debt and debt slavery every seven years. Jeremiah is just one of the prophets who reminds us that that pattern was set by God, who brought the Hebrews out of the house of slavery in Egypt. Debt, slavery, slavery to debt, 
and debt slavery. This was the reality of poor people in the ancient world. And it was the reality that God released a small oppressed group of outsiders from in an event that became the center of their story, the Exodus. Jesus scholar John Dominic Crossan says, the biblical God did not oppose Egypt because it was not Israel, but because it was not just. Mirroring the justice served in their story of origin became a focal point for the Hebrew people. Thus, all of the prohibitions against interest and pledges and lifelong indebtedness. Thus, the inclusion of indebtedness in the middle of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We who live in 21st century North America know something about debt, too. We've determined that some of it is good, like the debt that we take on when buying a home or a car or starting a business. It's the kind of debt that allows many to thrive in the present. It's the kind that has future value. But then there is the other kind, the debt that paralyzes the present and makes the future not a thing of hopeful mystery, but a thing of worry or even despair. It is the kind of debt that I hear about on a weekly basis from folks who call the church office in a panic because they can't pay their rent or utility bill. It's the kind that accumulates over years when the medical emergency leads to the job loss and then medical debt and then eviction. It's the kind that accumulates when even full-time work doesn't cover those month-to-month expenses, much less the unanticipated car damage or trip to the dentist. It is the kind that adds up and up and up at MLGW. So even if you do manage to find a new job or secure a new home, you can't turn on the lights or the air or the heat until you've paid the debt owed from the last place. It is the kind that you literally can't get out from under because the second that you even break even, you take another hit. Y'all, it is the kind of debt that frustrates me, the receiver of the requests for help. And in a way that is painful to admit makes me angry sometimes at the person who is on the other end of that line because their situation is so desperate that just attending to what's happening to them this week or this day isn't really going to help in the long run. It's not really going to fix it. So my release from the feeling of helplessness is to pin the problem on that person It is his fault he's in this situation. It is his fault he is hungry, exhausted, one sleep away from homelessness with his children. I don't need to carry the burden of this thing. It is the kind of debt that traps most people who were born in the wrong zip code. 
and it disproportionately traps people of color by no accident through red line neighborhoods with their lack of capital and underfunded schools and stagnant wages and no insurance and food deserts. It further traps them through the criminalization of activities that white kids routinely receive a slap on the wrist for. And it is compounded by profiling, making daily activities like walking and driving and answering a question occasions for white Americans to act on their biases, whether they are overt or hidden in the depths of consciousness. As we forgive our debtors, when Jesus calls us to forgive our debtors, he is not calling us to piety. He's not calling us to grant great mercy to those who actually owe us something. Because the prophets in his tradition understood that indebtedness was an imposition that systematically used people to build wealth for other people while denying those builders a share in that wealth. To forgive our debtors means to release them. And to release them means to acknowledge the perversity of a system that traps them and dehumanizes them. And to acknowledge means to repent. The beginning of all truly restored relationships, which is why we include a prayer of confession at the beginning of every worship service every week. We don't get to decide that this work is too tiresome. Our words of preparation from earlier in the service are instructive. They were spoken by the Reverend Denise Anderson, who preached for us a few weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday. As a woman of color, a PCUSA minister and the current coordinator of the denomination's Racial and Intercultural Justice Office, I imagine that in these past weeks, she has been utterly inundated with questions from well-meaning congregations who want to get involved in anti-racism work. After the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. And so she answers us. If the predominantly white church wants to lead in any way in these times, it can lead by modeling confession and repentance. That is literally the only way it can provide a moral witness right now. It has no higher ground from which it can start. Metanoia is the only way forward. It's the work of the church because we are keepers of a truth, of the truth, that all are made in God's image. We are stewards of the way that Jesus blessed some people in particular because their inherent worthiness had been questioned. And we are holders of the light that exposes everything as it is, with the constant invitation to really see and repent and to heal. 
as we forgive our debtors is a challenge in the middle of a prayer so that every time we pray it, we are talking to ourselves in as much as we are talking to God. We are reminding ourselves that God's forgiveness of us isn't cheap grace. It's transformative grace. It's courage-building grace. Some of you may be aware that debt is not always the word that's used when churches pray the Lord's Prayer. You've probably had the experience of attending a worship service in another church where you've had to wait an extra beat for the person sitting next to you to trespass while you named your debt. Or perhaps you've attended a service where the word sin is used. The diversity of translations reflects the diversity of translations in the Gospels themselves and the interpretive work of the writers as they moved from debts to trespasses to sins, from the literal to the metaphorical, discerning the relation between them. As Crossan puts it, the ultimate challenge may be to ponder their interaction. The gospel according to Luke makes it most plain, and I think probably gets it right. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone indebted to us. The indebtedness that exploits some and divides us all is something that we, the people, have to fix. And it is sin that we pray God forgives us for as we go about that hard and long overdue work. It is the work of the church and it is calling us. Thanks be to God. Amen.